Jesus, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of the Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those brought, on, brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, son of Jezadak, and the rest of their brothers the priests and the Levites and all who had returned from the captivity to Jerusalem began their work appointing Levites 20 years of age and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Joshua and his sons and brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah, and the sons of Henadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord, as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving they sang to the Lord, He is good, his love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping, because the people made so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. Let's come before God in prayer. Gracious Father, we do thank you for uh, your word. We pray for the children now as they're being taught your word that uh, you would uh, be enlightening them and help us, Lord God, as we see how the scriptures of the Old Testament uh, point to Jesus, that uh, we would know more of why Jesus came, what he has done and how uh, his death and resurrection makes the difference for us. And so we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder when are the times that you feel closest to God? Do you know those times I'm talking about? Uh, Is it uh, perhaps when you get up early in the morning and you're able to watch the sun rise over the ocean? Uh, Or is it uh, perhaps when you're uh, out uh, at night on a clear night and you look up to the heavens and you see the grandeur of the creation in the skies? What about uh, those times when you're reading God's word uh, in the morning perhaps or in the evening, whatever time of day that you read God's word, and you find yourself uh, 
absorbed in prayer uh, to your heavenly Father. Do you feel close to God at those times? Well, if you do, then uh, you would not be unlike the psalmists. Uh, We see that, uh, for example, in Psalm 19, when David uh, looks up to the skies, he's able to say to to God, uh, the heavens declare your glory. I know that you're there. I know that you're real because I can see what you've created. And he goes on in Psalm 19 to talk about the word of God. And he says that the law of the Lord is it's perfect. It, the statutes, it revives my soul when I feed on God's word. Revives his soul in, in a way that he knows that only God could do. Uh, is that your experience? When do you feel closest to God? Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, the people of Israel, uh, they knew that God was there uh, through the creation and through the word that he'd given them. But they also uh, knew that they had a, an experience of God uh, which was, was different to all of the other nations around them uh, because God had made some very profound promises. He had promised through Abraham and Abraham's descendants that he would be their God, that they would be his people, and more than that, that, he, that God himself would dwell with them. Now, there are a number of passages in the scriptures that talk about uh, God's promise that he would dwell with his people. One of them, for example, is in Leviticus chapter 24, I think it is, 26, uh, which I've listed on your outlines, where God says, and I quote, I will live among you and I will not despise you. I will walk among you. Uh, I will be your God and you will be my people. Now, imagine that. Imagine God uh, walking among you. Imagine God living among you. Uh, In one sense, it sounds like a crazy thought, isn't it? Because uh, he is the God of of the universe uh, and you you cannot contain him in a a single spot. He, He is bigger than all of the creation and he doesn't therefore just live in a tract of real estate in the Middle East and he He certainly doesn't live in a building. I mean, he's God of the universe. But yet in the Old Testament, God had said, I will dwell with you to Israel. And God's presence uh, to Israel, in Israel, was symbolised by a building. Now, in the early days after they left Egypt, uh, that building was a temporary building. It was a tent uh, that they would have the Ark of the Covenant in and various other uh, objects and they would, they would erect it and then they would worship God there and they would pack it away as they moved on. Uh, in the days after the entry into the land, after Solomon in particular, uh, God's presence amongst his people was symbolised by the temple, uh, the great temple of Solomon that was built in Jerusalem. Now, last week we were reminded that 600 years before Jesus, that that temple in Jerusalem had been destroyed because the Babylonian army had invaded the land. They had 
ruined the city, they had destroyed the temple of God and they took God's people out of the land that God had given them and trekked them across the desert into exile in Babylon. Well, what we saw last week was that uh, in the book of Ezra, which you might like to have open in your Bibles, the book of Ezra, uh, in the book of Ezra, under King Cyrus, the king of Persia, uh, and you might, you'll open up at 335 is the page, under the king of, king of Persia, Cyrus, there was a group of about 50,000 Jews that were allowed to return home. Have a look at uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Now, these are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town, in company with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpah, Bigvi, Rehum and Banar. How's that, folks? By the way, that um, uh, the um, Mordecai there is not the Mordecai that we read about in Esther. It was just a very common name. But then, of course, the rest of the chapter there is, is the passage that I guess that congregation members wouldn't be falling over themselves to volunteer to read up front on, in the service, although Alyssa did say she'd have a crack at it if I wanted her to. I'm not going to try doing that now, but what I want to say is that God has put that long list of Hebrew names there for a very good reason. All scripture is there for our benefit. And there are a number of... I could actually preach a sermon on chapter 2. There is enough material there to do it. Let me just summarise what I'd say from chapter 2. For starters, if you have a look at the list, in verse 2... First amongst the leaders who took them back was Zerubbabel and Zerubbabel represents the kingly line of God's people. And then uh, there is uh, Jeshua who represents the priestly line. So what that tells us is that there is a continuity between the pre-exile Israel and the post-exile Israel that the kingly line would also exist in the post-exile Israel, in the re-established Jerusalem and Judea. Now, that's very important when you think about the, um, the, 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 uh, the, the genealogy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? The kingly line would continue. The priestly line would continue as well uh, through Jeshua uh, in this newly established uh, Jerusalem. Now, secondly, verses 3 through to 20 tell us of certain uh, people, people belonging to certain families. Now, what that reminds us of is also the continuity between the pre-exile Israel and the post-exile Israel. And it reminds us that God had given the land to the ancestors of these people. That, and the, the land had been apportioned under Joshua and that people had gone to their own towns which they valued because that was the land that God had given them. 
And so there is this continuity between the pre-exile and the post-exile in terms of the land. Um, uh, uh, sorry, in terms of the families and v verses 21 to 35 rather uh, tell us of the towns that people went to. Uh, and those towns would have been in ruins but it's a reminder that God had given their forefathers that land in verses 21 through to 35. So 3 through to 20 is the families, the generational continuity, 21 to 35 is the towns and that's the continuity of the gift of the land. Uh, then fourthly, verses 36 right through to verse 70 are all the names of all the priests, the singers and the temple servants. Now that's actually half the chapter. And there's a good reason for that because there was a reason why these people made the trek back from Babylon uh, to Jerusalem, to the ruins of Judah. And what was that reason? The reason was to rebuild the temple. In verse 64, there's a good summary. Verse 64, 42,360 people plus 7,337 servants. So they weren't all doing bad in Babylon, were they? They actually had servants. 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels and 6,720 donkeys. Those donkeys breed well, don't they? Uh, plus there would have been all of the livestock that people had given them for the offertories uh, when they, uh, for the sacrifices that they would uh, have once they returned. And that's exactly what they got into. As soon as they got into the land, they got settled uh, in their towns, the first thing that they did was what we see in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, where we're told that all of these individual people, they all gathered together. Uh, you see, God had scattered his people in judgment, and now he was gathering to them together, assembling them in his mercy. And what did they do? Well, in chapter 3, verse 2, they rebuilt the altar of God. Now, in one sense, that might be like someone, a group of people that have come into a land and they've planted the flag and they've said, this is our land now, we're, we're taking hold. But there was much more than that. Because by rebuilding the altar of God, they were now re-establishing the worship of God in Israel, in, in, in Jerusalem. They could now offer sacrifices. They hadn't been able to do that for 70 years. Not in Jerusalem. But now they could. By the way, this was not going to be easy for them. Um, take a look at verse 3. What emotion did they feel as they built the altar? Can anyone see it? What was the emotion that they felt they felt? Fear. Why did they feel fear? Well, because this land was not empty. That's why. Uh, 180 years earlier, uh, there was an invasion that took place. What, what was the great world power in that part of the world before the Babylonians? It was the... Any guess? was the Assyrians uh, under people like Tiglath-Pileser III and Sennacherib and so on. When the, Ass the Assyrians had gone into the land, they defeated the northern kingdom of Israel, they deported the people out of the land into Assyria, but they repopulated the land with their own people. 
So in a sense, the land had been in, in its Sabbath rest for uh, 70 years, but it was not empty. Uh, the, the descendants of those people who the Assyrians had sent there still lived there. They called it home. Do you think they were happy to see the Jews return? No, not at all. And so uh, what we're going to see next week is the, uh, the conflict and the opposition that took place um, to this uh, resettlement by the Jews and particularly the building of the temple. And so there was a certain fear that they had uh, when they built this altar. But in verses 3 through to 6, the altar was built. For the first time in 70 years, God's people were worshipping him in Jerusalem how did they worship him? Well, two ways. I just want to point out these two points. First of all, we see that they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. Have a look at verse 4. Let me read that. In verse 4, Then in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. Right, now you can read that and just gloss over it, but... Um, what is it? What is a tabernacle, by the way? Anyone know? A tabernacle is a? It's a tent. It's an old English word for tent. Um, it's, a, it's a temporary dwelling. And the Feast of Tabernacles was something which they celebrated in order to remember that they once lived in tents. They were not tents of canvas like we would use. They were tents more of branches and sticks and bits of foliage that they would put together, but that is how they lived in the wilderness. At the Feast of Tabernacles is a reminder that God had saved them out of slavery in Egypt and that he had guided them and through the creation had looked after them for 40 years in their wanderings in the desert. Friends, we, uh, when we think about the salvation that God has given us, we look back to the cross of Jesus, don't we? And we're reminded that God is a saving God. Second thing we note is that they offered up lots of sacrifices to God. Verse 5, after that they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord as well as those brought as free will offerings for the Lord. So there was lots of sacrifices that were going on. Uh, we also read earlier that it was morning sacrifices, it was evening sacrifices. That were, What is the purpose of an animal sacrifice? It is to atone for sin. It is to pay the penalty for sin. It is to turn away the wrath of God. So in Offering up these sacrifices, there was an acknowledgement, a confession to God that they had sinned against Almighty God, that they needed blood to be spilt to pay for that sin so that they could be right with God again. When you think about those two things, the Feast of Tabernacles, the sacrifices on the altar, it kind of makes you think about Jesus, doesn't it? Kind of make, He's the one who saved us out of slavery. And in Romans chapter 3, Paul says that on the cross that God presented him as an atoning sacrifice for our sins through faith in his blood. So there we see it. Their first priority was the altar. 
Then in verses 7 through to 13, they began what was the really the big job, and that was the job of rebuilding the temple. Now, it was going to take 24 years just to get the temple building done, a lot longer before they'd get all the walls around the temple courts done and so on. But in chapter 3, they got as far as laying the foundations. Take a look at what happened in verse 7. In verse 7, then they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorised by Cyrus, the king of Persia. Now, that actually sounds a lot like what happened when Solomon built the first temple. Uh, In passages in 2 Kings and in 2 Chronicles... Uh, we read that when Solomon built his temple, that he, he got all of his cedar from, from Lebanon, that he had them uh, uh, shipped, had the cedar shipped to, to Joppa, and he paid for it with food, with provisions. It sounds a bit like the Solomon's, Solomon's temple. In fact, everything seems really good. It's all good. When they laid the foundations for the temple, there's a big celebration that takes place. Have a look at that, verse 10. Uh, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by the king of Israel, David. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good, His love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. That's a great picture, isn't it? Imagine that. It wasn't exactly quiet, was it? No, not, not at all. It's, it's loud. It's musical. There's cymbals that are clashing. There's trumpets that are blasting. There's people that are shouting praise to God. Uh, And it is joyful, it is thankful, and it's only the foundation being laid. But in verse 12, there is a different picture. In verse 12, we're told that many of the older people were in tears. Uh, Not tears of joy, but tears of disappointment. Um, these are the elderly people who were alive before the exile. They would have been children or just teenagers at the time. But they were old enough to remember what Solomon's temple looked like. They were old enough to have seen the glory of Solomon's temple and when they looked at the foundations of this temple, they thought, nah, this ain't going to be anywhere near as glorious as the Temple of Solomon. And so they were disappointed. You've got on the one hand a lot of people praising God and shouting with joy and others are crying over it. In fact, it says there that you couldn't tell the difference, the the, the joy and and and, and those who were disappointed. One uh, One of the prophets who lived at the time of Ezra was the prophet Haggai. Uh, There's two prophets that were prophesying at this time. One's Haggai, the other one was Zechariah. Haggai 
had something to say about this issue of their disappointment with the temple as they foresaw that it was going to be. I wonder if you might um, come with me to Haggai chapter 2. Now Haggai, you'll find after Zechariah, no, before Zechariah, 667, So he's there when they're building the the temple. And have a look at Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through to 9. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace declares the Lord Almighty. That's a great promise, isn't it? There they are, they're looking at this temple going up and they're thinking, this don't look all that great, but but, uh, there's Haggai and he's saying, no, keep at it, the glory of this house will will far outstrip the glory of Solomon's house. And guess what? All of the desired of nations, all the people of the world, they're going to flow into Jerusalem. The reality was that that temple was nothing like Solomon's. Didn't come anywhere near the glory of Solomon's temple. And neither was Jerusalem a great city. I mean, they were being ruled by the pagans. They were being ruled by the Persians. And then when Alexander the Great came along and conquered the world, they were ruled by the Greeks. And when the Roman Empire rose up and turfed out the Greeks, they, were, they became a, an insignificant backwater of the Roman Empire. Solomon's temple was dripping with gold. Uh, when Solomon's temple was dedicated, we're told that the, the glory of the cloud of the Lord uh, filled the temple visibly. It was an incredible moment. How could any temple be greater than that? How could God's presence be more glorious? Well, what if God should turn up? I mean, I'm not talking about a building, but what if God should actually become a man and come and dwell physically 
amongst us. Um, go, go, go to John's Gospel, chapter 1, for a moment, if you wouldn't mind. John, chapter 1. And in verses 1 and 2, John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he talks about this concept of the Word, which John's hearers would have understood. And who is this Word? Well, this Word is God. See that? He says, The Word was with God, and the Word was God doesn't say he was a God or might have been a God. He says the word was God. Now go down to uh, verse 14. In verse 14, he says, the word became flesh. So God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Uh, The King James translates that as he... He tabernacled amongst us. He tented amongst us. Like the tent in the wilderness, like the temple. The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Uh, When Haggai said that the glory of the new temple would far outstrip the glory of Solomon's temple, he was actually pointing to a greater spiritual reality. He was anticipating something different. Because you cannot have God being more present or more glorious than for God to become a man and to live amongst us. And that's what we find in Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. That's why the incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas time is so important. He is the glory of God dwelling with his people. Not in a building, but in a person. As a person. Now, you may say, well, that's all very well and good if you happen to live in first century Judea and you happen to stumble across Jesus. What about for us living here now? How, how can we experience this glory, glorious presence of God? Now, there's a few different views around as to how people think that you can experience God. You've probably heard a few of those views. Uh, there, there are some people, I don't know if you've come across this, but there's some people who say that you, you experience God and God's presence by entering into certain buildings. Have you come across that at all? There are certain sort of religious buildings that the architects have actually specifically designed so that as soon as you enter into it, it kind of feels like there's an aura. It feels like God is there. Um, others say, well, uh, it doesn't matter so much about the architecture of the building, but um, it's the atmosphere, it's the environment. You, you, uh, you create a, often by use of music, you create a musical environment so that uh, people get caught up in this sort of sensation and this feeling and it's, a music, it's an environment which is conducive to God actually 
coming amongst you. Now, if either of those things were correct, then quite frankly, Jesus would never have died on the cross and risen again. Uh, Because when Jesus died on the cross, he died on an altar. He paid the ultimate sacrifice, uh, which is what the temple is all about. And he's risen from the dead. And when Jesus went to be with his Father in heaven, did he leave us alone? Did he leave us devoid of the presence of God? Did he? Yes or no? No! And the people shouted, no! (laughs) Of course he didn't, because he sent God, the Holy Spirit, to come into the world. Now, God, the Holy Spirit, as he came into the world, he convicts us of our sin. He draws us to trust in the gospel and he changes our lives from the inside out so that God dwells not in a building but in us, in you and me. We are the temple of God. Uh, In the passage that's printed for you on your um, front of your bulletins there from Ephesians chapter 2, a good passage to memorise, Paul says uh, that the foundation of the temple uh, is the apostles and the prophets. I take it that that means the message that they proclaimed. That's That's the foundation. The foundation of the temple is the gospel message. The cornerstone of the temple is what? Jesus. Uh, He is the one upon whom the temple is built. The building blocks of the temple, well, that's you and me. We are the stones. You know, with Solomon's temple, they carved all the stones elsewhere and they transported it to Jerusalem and they assembled it all. We are those stones. We are being built up as a temple, as a holy dwelling, as, a, as we are the temple in whom God dwells by his spirit. And so how do you experience the presence of God? Well, it is by trusting in the gospel. It's by turning your life over to God. Because as we do that, we enter into a relationship with God a forgiven relationship, a reconciled relationship with God. And there is no greater experience. You simply cannot get closer to God in this world than for God to dwell in you by his spirit. How can you be closer to God than to have, than to have God living in you? You cannot. And friends, if you're a person who trusts in the gospel, if you're a person who's turned your life over, then God does dwell in you because he's done that for you by his spirit in your life. Now, what do you reckon? Do you reckon that we look more glorious than Solomon's temple in all of its gold and its grandeur? What do you reckon? Some of you are pretty good looking. (laughs) Well, the answer is yes. Yes, Solomon's temple ain't got anything on God's church, the people that have been redeemed by God. Let me finish with a story. 
a non-Christian man comes to church. He didn't know God. Uh, life had been through a few difficulties for him. And uh, yeah, someone invited him along to church one day. He came along. And he sat there and he heard the Bible being read and heard the gospel being taught. And he met a few people, people who bothered to go and say, G'day, how you going? My name's, what's your name? Offered him a cup of tea and coffee. Stood around chatted with him for a while. Uh, next week he came back. Week after that he came back. Week after that he came back. And sometime later he said, you know, um, when I first started coming to church, I, I didn't know God. I, I do know God now, but I didn't then. And he said, in those early weeks, I, I, I'd go home and, you know what, I'd cry. He said, I, I'd weep uh, because of, of what I'd heard about Jesus, but, but also because of the people that I'd met. They were kind of different. They were kind of, what would you say? He said, is godly the word? <laughs> so it was kind of like I could see God in them. Very different. Now friends, uh, that story could be repeated time and time again. In fact, uh, I, I've read research that where they've researched people that have become Christians in the last 12 months and asked, what, what was it that caused you to become a Christian? And, and the people have said, it was a person. It was a group of people who I got to know. And I got to see that what they believed about Jesus was what was evident in their lives. Do you reckon Solomon in all these glories got anything on that? No. And it's what you would expect, is it not? If God dwells within us. If we are the temple of God. Of course, it, what it means is we need to keep on growing, don't we? We keep, need to keep on asking God to keep on changing us through the power of his word so that we would become more like Jesus. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul says that uh, what it's like if an unbeliever comes in amongst you and uh, he hears what you've got to say and he gets to know you. And he says, surely God is with those people. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do thank you for your presence amongst your people, for the great promises that you made to Israel, for the way that uh, you uh, purged and purified them through the exile, for the way that uh, you continued your promises of a priest and a king uh, through those returnees. Father, we thank you for the greatest temple, uh, the temple of Jesus who has uh, come and lived amongst us, uh, the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is your people in whom you dwell by your spirit. And we thank you, Father God, that we can look forward to the heavenly Jerusalem where John in Revelation 21 says that uh, 
that I looked at the heavenly Jerusalem and I saw that there was no temple because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Father, we thank you that we can be your people and we pray that you would keep on changing us from the inside out, that we would be more gentle, that we would be more considerate, that we would be more humble, that we'd be more like our Lord and Saviour Jesus and that others would see that and be drawn to the Saviour. We pray in his name. Amen. Um, I'll hand over to...